Let's turn to John 14 then, because I'd hope to get this piece done by now, but we're running a little behind because I'm such a mouth. Um, and I want to take a look at this passage probably a little bit differently than you've heard of it. There's something we've done with this passage I think is really unfortunate, but I, I, still, so I, I still want us to kind of look through this passage. You may not agree with my interpretation of it at the end. I could do the same teaching from 16 different passages in the New Testament. I love doing it from here because I think this gets to the core of it at so many levels. But we've basically thrown out the first four verses of John 14 out of our life here because we pretty much said, Jesus is talking about heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And because we've got songs like, I've got a mansion just over the hill. We're just convinced that what Jesus is talking about in John 14 is, listen, I'm going to ascend to the Father, and then I'm going to prepare heaven for you. So we've got Jesus like now the divine contractor up there building mansions so that he can come again at the second coming and receive us to himself so that we can go live in heaven. Um, Which, you know, I I believe Jesus ascended to the Father. I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe we're going to be eternally with him. I just don't think John 14 is talking about that, and I'll tell you why. Jesus is leaving them. He's getting ready to go away, and he starts the same passage with that whole don't let your hearts be troubled, which is easier said than done. All of it. Don't be afraid. I'm leaving. And, I mean, they've left jobs. They've left everything to hang out with this guy. And now he says, I'm going away. And they've, he spooked him a little bit. He's already said in John 13, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So he's now trying to get to, now don't be afraid. Trust God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many Depending on your translation, I've got rooms here. I think New American Standard says dwelling places. King Jimmy said mansion, so that got us all thinking about eternity. The word that's used here is the same word exact. It's the noun form of the word used in John 15 about us remaining or abiding in the vine. It's the word abide. It's the verb form in John 15, abide in me and I'll abide in you. We don't think that's future. We're not throwing that into eternity. This is just the noun form of the same word. It's an abode. You know, it doesn't play out as well in English, but it's just, in my father's house, I, like, I think I like what New American Standard does best with it, are many places to dwell. There's something in father's house, father's heart, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, and you know the way where I'm going. So here's the deal. Jesus is in the upper room here, and he's going away tomorrow at the cross. He's coming again on Sunday. So this is Thursday. We know he didn't get killed on Friday, by the way, but everybody keeps saying he got killed on Friday. Huh? Yeah, because, you know, we got a Good Friday thing already going, and you can't ruin that because nobody will get it. But anyway, you don't get the three days if he dies on Thursday. Anyway, so Sunday, he's coming back, the resurrection. And what we're saying, though, Jesus is skipping all this. The two most important events in human history, in John 4, he's skipping those. He's talking 43 days away about his ascension. And then some 2,000 plus years away, his second coming. And so we've got, Jesus saying, okay, let's skip all this. This isn't important. So I'm, I'm going away. I'm going to build mansions. And then I'm going to come back and get you so we can all live in our mansions together. Now, if that's what John wants to mean by it, I'm fine with that because he can go build mansions if he wants. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I do think the going away that he's been talking about all night in this passage is tomorrow, the cross. And coming again is the resurrection to receive you to myself. 
And the Father's house isn't heaven. It's not a mansion somewhere. Father's house is the place where God dwells. In my Father's house, home. The, the brothers and sisters I hang out with in Ireland when I go, it's a great group outside of Dublin that been walking relationally for about 25 years together. And I just, I love hanging out with them. They have such a neat life together. And uh, on my podcast, The God Journey, we interviewed a couple of those brothers. You can hear their story if you want to hear it. It's just a fun story. But um, they have a song they sing together. And the song is about this upward path, this narrow way of walking with God and to enjoy his life. And then the chorus, God says, and I will come and be at home in you. And the first time I heard that absolutely gave me the chills. Because I said, bingo, that's what John 14 is about. The best day of this trip, the best day of any trip I take, is the last day. It's the day I get home. I never wanted to travel. I grew up on a farm in Central California, never thought I'd leave the state. I don't get my jollies out of traveling. There's not a night, as, as fun as you guys might be over these days together, there's not a night in my life where I'd rather not be home with Sarah. When I'm away, it's because Sarah and I have both chosen that this is something God's asked me to do, and I go. Um, I don't accept an invitation without both of us clearly hearing, yep, that sounds like God. But the best day, I mean, I love being at home. I love walking in that door, throwing my bags at the bottom of the stairs, and I'm at home. My wife's there, my dog's there, my granddaughter might be there. My daughter's there. She's less important now that we have the granddaughter, but we still love her. Um, my son, he won't be there on a Monday night. He lives about an hour away, but often on the weekend he'll be home. If I, sometimes he comes home for weekends. There's nothing like being home. Your chair, your bed, your pillow, my Diet Coke, that's my drug of choice. Um, you know, it's whatever you enjoy. And being at home and, and not... I mean, I have a lot of fun when I travel, and I, I'm pretty much at home wherever I hang out, but there's nothing like being at home, and people you can be at home with. You know what I mean? I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to here, to be at home in Father, and for Father to be at home in you. Now, this is a big statement. I mean, this is the holy God of the universe and your little, dirty, corrupted humanity that we are. And the Father of the universe wants to be at home in you and for you to be at home in Him. God's the safest place to be, not the scary guy waiting to whack you. I think if we get this, if we understand what Jesus is saying, the invitation is to be at home in Father's life. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The going is the preparing. I'm going, the going, the cross, opens the door for us to access Him relationally. And if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, the resurrection, to come and say, now come into this life in Father. And it really, it's not just the resurrection alone that does it. I don't really think they get it till somewhere in Acts. It may be Pentecost. It may be beyond it. Because even at the end of the Gospels, they're still going, oh, boy, we don't get it. And are you going to bring your kingdom now? And Jesus saying, no, it's never about that, guys. But somewhere they get it. In Acts, they get it. They live this related life in Father. This is, I think, what he's talking about. And this life being at home in Father is how I'm to wake up every day and to be at home in Him and to know this God with all my fears, all my doubts, all the things I'm still tempted to, all the struggles and failures I have in my life, this Father on this day wants to be at home in Wayne and wants me to be at home in Him. And if I live there, that's where everything happens that transforms me. People, you know, Paul, every time he talked about this stuff, he would say, oh, so we don't care about sin because God doesn't care about sin anymore. You haven't heard me say that. God cares about sin. Sin is what diminishes you 
from the person God made you to be. Sin is a twist and a distortion in our lives. That's what it is. Does God not care? Yes, He cares. But He knows the only way He's going to transform us from sin is to love us out of it and to love us into freedom. And I, I got a great letter a couple of weeks ago from a, it was a response to one of the podcasts. You guys aware of the podcast when I say that? You know what I'm talking about? TheGodJourney.com? Did I not lose anybody? No, people say, uh, it's just a radio show I do once a week with a brother. We put a half an hour on the internet or 40 minutes or so of he and I just talking about all kinds of garbage. And it allows us to interview people. It's, it's thegodjourney.com. It's absolutely free. You just click on it and listen to it. We're not charging anybody for anything. Um, we got a letter. I think it's on, yeah, it was on this, it's on this week, actually. A uh, letter from Brenda, gal in her 50s. And she had heard of one of the podcasts we did about where's the power. And she wrote and she talked about her transformation from a, a lesbian woman her whole life to God loving her in, out of that lifestyle and into his life and freedom. And it is an amazing letter. The struggle, the intensity of the struggle. It wasn't easy. It wasn't great. It was just, but God put her through this process that transformed her out of his love and affection. So God knows that when we live in him this way is where we'll be transformed. And we'll talk about more about that tomorrow. So Jesus is saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to receive it in myself that where, and here's where I think we really get the proof of, it's not just he's skipping a few events here to get to these big events. But notice at the end of this, that is the last part of three, first part of four, Jesus is saying that where I am, there you will be also. Where is he when he's saying that? Where is he? He's in the Father. Geographically, where is he? He's in the upper room. He's in Jerusalem. Okay, That's geographically where he is. If he was talking about this, I think Jesus would have to say at the end of this passage that where I will be, there you will be also. Because he's not here. He's not heaven. He's here in the upper room geographically, but they don't even, I mean, but that's still not what he's talking about. So he kind of gives them a, a bit of a segue. And I love the way Jesus does this. He says, and you know the way where I'm going. Now, see, I don't think those guys had any idea what in the blazes he's talking about. I think Jesus loves to throw that little stuff out there just to see, are you going you you to come? And I can think of Peter, James, and John being the guys that are just saying, Hmm, yes, amen, oh yes, yes, we know the way where you're going. Because they're just those kind of guys. Thomas is not that kind of guy. You notice how religion belittles Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. Because we don't want people asking difficult questions. I think Thomas is one of Jesus' favorite critters. Because if Thomas doesn't say, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way, we don't get the rest of this passage. The upper room discourse is over. They're saying, hmm, amen, amen, and we go home. And then they would sing a hymn and go out. See? Religious folks hate people asking questions. Even when you don't get it, you're supposed to pretend you get it. Thomas is not one. I love Thomas. I think Thomas ought to be the poster boy of discipleship. Because his thing is, hold it a minute, back the truck up. You know the way where I'm going. I don't even know where you're going. How do I know the way? That's just, that is just great stuff. To which Jesus says, and here's, here's another verse we've absolutely ruined. We take it out of context. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. So when Phil Donahue asks Jerry Falwell, does God hear the prayers of Jews or Muslims? Jerry Falwell pulls out John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you don't say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, he doesn't get it. You moron. And I mean that endearingly. 
That is not the answer to that question. The answer to that question is found in Acts chapter 10. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. Gentiles, the Holy Spirit's dumped out on the Gentiles, which Peter didn't go there to give them the Holy Spirit. Church is nine years old by the time we get to Acts 10. Peter's gone to the house of Cornelius only because God gave him this nutty vision and then said, three guys are coming to your door and I want you to go wherever they tell you to go. Now, he didn't have that. He's not, as soon as he finds out it's a Gentile's house, he can't go. That's unclean. He can't do that. But he had a vision. He had three guys show up. So knock on the door. One, two, three. Ah, uh, crud. Where are we going? Cornelius. Oh, crud. I'm supposed to go there. I'm sure he's just having a little tizzy. And he goes down there and he's going to tell them all about this great salvation that God's made available to them. He's not passing it out to the Gentiles. It's not theirs. It's his. And he's going to tell them about it, but he's not giving them nothing. And then the Holy Spirit pulls one of those little, I'll just dump myself all over him, and now you've got a problem. And sure enough, they had a problem. So Peter said, oh, we, I, if the Holy Spirit's going to be here, I guess we better baptize him. So they baptize him. And then Peter says, now I know that God hears the prayers of men everywhere who cry out to him. That's the answer to the Phil Donahue question. That's the answer. God listens to people who cry out to him. That just, they don't get the code right. It, God's, God's not all that freaked about the code. This verse was not about, if you don't put Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, you're not going to get it. That's not what this is about. This is a, a huge statement of the culmination of this book is a person. It's not the book. The book's meant to lead you to the person. The person is who transforms your life. He is the way. The book is not the way. He is the truth. The book is not the truth. The book is truth. I'm orthodox on that. This is God's words spoken in Revelation so we would know who He is and how to follow Him. I'm orthodox on this book. But this book is not the conclusion of itself. You search the Scriptures. You think in them you'll find life. The life is where? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you refuse to come to me. Jesus is the last word spoken, the exact representation of the Father's nature. The culmination of a book is a person. The Word of God is a person. This book never calls itself the Word of God. It doesn't. We've adopted the term because we'd rather serve the book than love the man. He is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. When the Word divides between soul and spirit, He's not talking about the book. He's talking about the man, Jesus Christ, who divides between soul and spirit. Now, I love this book. I read this book almost every day of my life. I study it. I know lots about this book. I will continue to read this book because I love the man who wrote it. All right? Sarah's probably the last person on the planet to read the Jake book. She normally reads everything right away, and she's been very busy, so she hasn't gotten to it till her school year's kind of winding down, so she's getting into it some now. Um, now. Sarah doesn't not read a book I write because, well, she knows me. She doesn't need the book. Well, she doesn't really need the book. She enjoys the book. That'd be like me saying, well, you know, I know Sarah, and I love her, so if she sends me an email. When I'm, I, we don't do email when I'm, when I'm stateside. We've got cell phones that call each other and we don't mess with that. But when I'm overseas and it costs uh, $200 a minute to call, then we do email. I don't read my email. Oh, here's a, I don't need to read her email because I know Sarah and I don't need it. Are you kidding? Every email I get from Sarah, man, I can't wait to read it. I, that's my link to home. So it, I don't think saying Jesus is the word of God diminishes this. My goodness. But I think it puts this in its right place. This leads us to Him. If you don't have a growing, thriving, living relationship with Him, 
The book can be a distraction. The book can be an idol. The book can be a substitute for the real thing. But if you know the real thing, if you know Jesus, and if you're, you know, and that's just the journey because we all know in part, see in part, we're growing in the knowledge of that. Then man, reading everything he's written to us so that we'd understand it, that's a big deal. But he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. It's not in the book. There's life and no other, First John says, except the Son. In him we have life. So the whole point of God's revelation is to move us to this relationship. So I am the way, the truth, and what that means for me, I've, this is about my third or fourth time I've been in this area, and every time I fly into this airport, I've never once rented a car from the Harrisburg Airport and gone anywhere in this area. So I have no idea where I am. I get picked up. Uh, Lindsay picked me up the first time I was here or second time, and these guys picked me up another time, and I get hauled around the place. And uh, hopefully Monday morning I get back to the airport so I can go home and have the best day of the trip. Hopefully that'll work. But you know what? When I'm in this area on this trip, Carmen is the way, right? I don't have to know where I'm going. I don't have to know what time I need to be anywhere. If I hang out with Carmen, I'm going to be everywhere I need to be. Isn't that right? He's the way. All Jesus is saying, listen, you know me, hang out with me, and I'm going to get you there. Where? Now we get the, what, what, what is he talking about? That where I am, there you may be also. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we've got the whole of this is to be in the Father, the Father's house. The reason for this death and resurrection so he can take us to where he is is to be in Father. I write so neat. People can read that stuff very well later. You, get, you understand that? That's what he's talking about. Now I, I think Philip, a little courage given him by Thomas because... Uh, at the end of, well, I'm in John 5. How did that happen? We get back to 14. So Thomas asks his question. Jesus feeds back to him. Then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. This is how we know. They have no idea who he is. They don't know. He says, Jesus answered and said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me and the words I say to you are not my own? Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. And they say, I'll tell you the truth, you're going to do greater things than these. We'll get to that later. But what, what he describes here is what theologians rightly call mutual interpenetration. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. It's not the Father's with the Son, and the Son is with the Father, it's there in each other. That community that we know as God, we've tried to describe it with all kinds of things, words like Trinity, words like, it's not even in the Scriptures, but there's Father and Son, they're in each other, and we know the Holy Spirit, the Comforter is in there too, but not mentioned in this particular verse, so we're gonna, and I've only got two hands anyway, so it'll be easier to do this. Father's in the Son, and the Son's in the Father. Does that make sense? This is, you want to see what this community looks like? Read the prayer in John 17. The glory you gave me, I give to you. This, I mean, the, the interrelationship between a father and a son is reflected as beautifully in John 17 as it is anywhere. It's a lovely moment that these two exist, and the third, Holy Spirit as well, Orthodox on that too. Okay, they exist in this incredible community that has been from all time. The father absolutely loves the son. The son absolutely loves the father. The father trusts the son. The son trusts the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the father. They live in such community together that we describe that as God. 
Father, Son, Spirit in a community. Jesus saying, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Now, the real uptake of this, I'm going to skip some of what's right there because we're just in the interest of time. I want to get down to verse uh, 20. Uh, actually, let's go back to 19. He says, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and that you are in me and I am in you. Here's the offer we've been made into this relationship. I had to borrow some hands. You be the father and son, okay? Carmen, can you be the father and son stuff? Okay, now we've got, since we've got some extra hands, but not a very long cord, the Holy Spirit is in there too, okay? Now we've got that mutual interpenetration. They exist in that community of love and trust and life in relationship. And now Jesus says, because I live, you will live, and my life will be, you will live, and in that day you will realize that you are, that I'm in the Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. And he invites us to this community. Not, you can be with us. That's not the language. You'll be in us, in the community. The invitation for God to invite mere created humanity, flesh as it were, to access that divine community and live in him. Does that make sense? I, mean, I think that's the most awesome description of it. It's why the language, take that little what is it? I was going to say a pronoun. It's a preposition. Take that little preposition, in, I-N, and run it through the whole of the New Testament. Being in Christ, being in Him, or the Colossians 1 passage about Christ in you, the hope of glory, going back the other way. This whole mutual interpenetration, this is the life we're invited to live. Without it, we miss the whole incredible beauty of the nature of this relationship. Does that make sense? So how do, how do we... How do we find that life? Because I think we've been trained, really. There's, because that life is scary. Wow, I almost hung myself. That'd be fun. Be, because that life is scary. By the way, we, we, as I said, we were taping this, and somebody said, I'll let you guys know. If, if you want copies of this, well, I can't imagine after sitting through it, you'd want copies of it. But if you do or know somebody who does, then we're going to make them available through live stream. So you can check the website, and I don't know how or when we'll get them ready, because it'll take a little bit of processing once we get home and editing and... Whatever, and then figuring out how many discs it is and all that. So I can't give you any details about it, but if you want them, you can write us. And if you want me to write you when they're done, you can leave me your email on a sheet, and when they're ready, I'll let you know. Uh, Done with the advertisement. Um, So how do we enter into that life? If that's the mutual interpenetration, that's where God wants us to go. Why why is it difficult, seemingly, to get there? And uh, one, one of my favorite stories in the world from the New Testament, if you've heard anything I've said, you've probably heard me talk about this story. It's one of my favorites. It's, uh, we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but lousy title because the, the parable is not about a son. It's about two sons. I think the parable is really about a father. And the father that it's about is a, is a father unlike any you know. And if you don't, somebody needs some help. Can I get that door for somebody trying to peek their way through? There we go. Good. Thanks. Sorry about that. We're trying to lock the rest of them out, so but we'll let you in. Okay. Luke 15, Jesus is being accused again of hanging out too much with sinners. That's the problem in Luke 15. And so the religious people really don't like it when Jesus hangs out with sinners, because when you've spent all your life working not to be one of them, you would really think you'd get special privileges. This is why Pharisees are, by and large, pretty angry people, as I was. 
when you're working hard for God and God's still being nice to people who aren't working hard for God, it's just a real issue. So they've got an issue. So Jesus tells them three stories, one about a lost coin, one about a lost sheep, and then he gets to this story, which is sometimes called the lost son. But this is a longer parable, and I think he really blows up what's really happening in the context of this story. And so you're pretty familiar with Luke 15, aren't we? Parable of prodigal. Let's see how much of it we can kind of work through together. Why don't we do this? I'm not looking to... You know, I know, you know most people don't even bring their Bibles to Sunday services anymore. You know why not? Because when the pastor calls out a text, most people don't know how to find it. And if you spend too long looking for it, people know you're biblically illiterate. And so it's just easier not to bring your Bible. I'm serious. That's why a lot of people do not bring their Bibles. We, I, I do workshops for educators all the time. I have a thing called Bridge Builders, and I teach First Amendment issues and public school deals and mediate disputes. What I've noticed about teaching things in the world with secular folks is people don't mind brainstorming, don't mind throwing out an idea, and if it's not right, no big deal. But Christians are always bugged by having to have the right answer and somehow being embarrassed if we don't. So I, I'm not doing this to like, test us and see who knows the Bible and who doesn't. I'm just doing this because I think it's more fun to work through the story, try and remember it, as much of it as you remember from wherever you've experienced the story before. Okay? So if I say, well, then what happened here? And you say the wrong thing, don't pass out on me because no one cares. We don't, oh, that's, you're a bad believer. We'll mark that down so we don't have to <laughs> talk to you. We, it really is not important to me. What's important is that we are learning these things so that we can understand them. But I told you there was a father. He had two sons, right? And one of those sons was up to no good. Which son was that? Do you remember? Older younger? Younger boy. What does he ask his dad for? His inheritance. Are you doing this for your son? Let me just ask you. You that are dads. You got sons in their early 20s. Your son comes and says, hey, dad, give me. You doing it? Are you doing it? <laughs> Nobody's saying no. I'm not doing it. My son's 25. He comes to me next week and says, hey, dad, listen, I want the inheritance. I'm saying, inheritance? There is no inheritance till I die. <laughs> And after I'm gone now, you're not getting it. Julia's. So there you go. You know, I, I don't get this. this. This is the most incredible story in the world because the, the, the son's up. Do you think the father's surprised here? He doesn't know the son's going to do bad things with his money. If the son is going to dishonor him that much, he, he knows. The crazy thing about this parable is the father does it. What? He does he gives his son his share of the inheritance. And he sends, And the, what, what does the boy do with it? Do you remember? Party hardy. Party hardy. Okay, that's one way to say it. What does he do first? This tells you a lot about this boy. What does he do first? He goes to a far off country. I mean, this, I, you see, the, the, this, you think he has father issues? A yeah, little bit, a little bit, a little bit of father issues. Yeah, he goes to a far off country. And what does he do with the money? Party hardy? He parties down. We don't know what he does. Riotous living is how it's described. His older brother says later he consorted with prostitutes. Now, we don't know if he did or not. That's the older brother's view of it. Uh, Jesus just said he, he partied down pretty well. He spent it on himself. Some kind of riotous, decadent living. He spent not all of it. See, the, the wasn't a total idiot. I think he saved enough to live on. He kind of thought, well, you know, I'm going to need this much to live on, so I'm going to spend this much partying. Didn't count on the famine. Famine came through. Suddenly, what he saved isn't enough. Suddenly, he's got nothing. What? Inflation. Inflation. Yeah, inflation will kill you. Cost of gas went higher than you ever imagined it could go. Yeah, gotcha. We pay a dollar more than you all do out here. So I'm bringing my car out here to fill up next week and then go back. (laughs) 
probably defeats the purpose, but <laughs> spends it all. So he got nothing left. What does he do? He gets a job. Actually becomes, yeah, he becomes a slave. To a pig farmer. Yeah, to a pig farmer. Pig farmer's not popular in the Jewish culture. Get that? Yeah, okay, good. And then one day he comes to his senses. What brings him to his senses? He's hungry, but out of that, he was hungry for a while, but what really brought him to his senses? How does he remember home? He is hungry for pig food. And now when you're hungry, now blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. Is this boy at the end? This boy's at the end. When you sing what you're giving the pigs and you covet it because you are so hungry, you're in a world of hurt, right? So Jesus said he comes to his senses. And what does he decide to do? Go home to be a son again. No. Yeah, actually, yeah, not even quite a slave. Actually, he's... Slave would be worse, but hired servant. He's going. Yeah, I'll just see if my dad will hire me. Be a hired servant. He's got his speech ready. Remember his speech? Anyway, what does it say? Ah, ah, not sinned against heaven and earth. Not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just let me be a hired servant in your house, right? And he starts home. Now the scene shifts. Now we're not seeing the son anymore. Where are we? We're back home with the father. And it says about the father, when his son was yet a long ways off, how does he see that? Watching. I told you I grew up on a farm. We had a quarter mile dirt driveway from the main road back to our farmhouse. My dad was a slave driver. Just kidding, dad. Um, my, my, my kids don't understand the absolute terror of a Christmas vacation because for us, it was pruning vines in the cold. My kids, oh, we're Christmas vacation. I would rather be in school. We just, oh, no, it's Christmas vacation. No, Dad's got pruning shirts. He's out there sharpening them. Ah, I'll get you guys tomorrow. <laughs> sure enough, daylight, we're out in the icy snow. Uh, snow, icy frost. There was no snow there. But, you know, grapevines, when you're kind of cutting them off, and one of those canes in the cold wind, and your face is half frostbit, you know, it's not a good moment. Dad even made us work on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. He would always say, you know what? When your cousins get here, we'll stop working. <laughs> there wasn't a moment on New Year's Day or Christmas Day if our cousins were Christmas Eve when we were not looking at the driveway. <laughs> Pruning vines? Come on, be early. We'd call them, can you get here at 10? We're watching for them to come as soon as we see it. Say, why are you always watching? Why you see something that's a long ways off? You're always looking. This is not a short time span. He's wasted a sizable chunk of money. Famines hit the land. He's become a slave. However long that took, this father is still looking. And he sees his son while he's yet a long ways off. And what does he do? Are you doing this? Are you, if, you, if you were dumb enough to give your son, his, or daughter, her, his inheritance, they were dumb enough to go wasted in a far off country and starve themselves to death. And they're walking back up the road. Are you running to meet them? I can tell you, I'm not sure I am. I remember disciplining that boy growing up of mine. He was dumb enough to do all that. And if he's on his way back to grovel a bit, I think I'm of the mind to let him grovel. I got to tell you, I think I'm standing on the porch saying, ah, here he comes. Ah, I knew he'd be back. And you just wait. You watch him come all the way up to the house. And then, you know, he falls on his face and he starts his little speech. You know, Dad, I've sinned against that. 
Yeah, 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 you've done that. And I'm not worthy to be your son. What? What? Louder, louder. I'm not sure I heard you. Because to be a good dad, you want to make sure the kid really learned their lesson. It's not enough that they're just coming home to, to be humiliated. It's, you just got to load it on a little more. That's the kind of, unfortunately, dad I was at times. Yeah, I'm not giving him a free pass. This dad sees his son. You guys already said he jumps off the porch and takes off running. Now, get the picture. He's not wearing trousers. He's not wearing jogging shorts. He's not, what's he wearing? Long ropes. Yeah, long skirts. Now, I've never run in a long skirt. Think you'll be pleased to know that? I understand it's a bit tricky, is it? Some of you who have, a bit tricky. You've got to hike that puppy up and, well, for a man in this culture to hike up his ropes and run down the road was a great sign of dishonor. Men didn't do it. See, we don't want to get that because we see guys running all the time, jogging, old people jogging, shorts that are way too short. Get some longer shorts. Uh, <laughs> you got that going on all the time. So we don't think about this. And what historians will tell us about this time period, really, the son, the son who took all his daddy's money and wasted it and is coming back poor and hungry and emaciated how are the townspeople treating that kid? Not, I mean, yeah, 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 you like to see the rich kids kind of get slapped around a bit. I got to tell you, it's kind of a deal. We've had two uh, rich kids uh, crash their little Ferrari testosterosas or whatever they are out in California recently. And no, nobody's really crying. Oh, poor guy. You really kind of crashed him. It's kind of like idiots. Yeah. The kid is sorry? Absolutely. Uh, grant you that. This kid's uh, s- sort of sorry. He, uh, you know, again, he's negotiating for a better life is what he's doing. I still don't think the lesson of this story has sunk home yet for this kid. I really don't. I'll tell you why in a little bit. But you're right. He's coming home at least. Yeah, but he's coming home. And whatever this son would be getting mocked by the townspeople. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, how'd that inheritance work out there for you? You know, Because the stories would have been known. The brother at least knew something about him, or thought he did anyway. But what the historians will tell us is whatever shame and humiliation the son bore coming home through the town, dad trumps when he hikes up his skirts and goes running down the road. Whatever mockery was directed at the son would now shift to the father. Oh, look at that idiot. What that? It's all over. He's trumped the son's shame. Part of the running is, I'm not going to make you hurt one second longer than it took you to get back to me. You're coming back. See, I, I have a piece of this from my life. Sarah and I have always had some single folks near us that uh, have not had family in the area. We, we've pretty well had either a single living with us or a couple of singles that came over to dinner three or four times a week. We just always said, hey, our family's your family. If you want to hang in here, you get a raise at work. Come by here and tell us. We'll celebrate with you. You get fired and want to cry, come over here. We'll cry with you. And we've always had singles that were close. One of those was a young woman that was uh, probably late 20s. And uh, she came over one day with a friend of hers to tell us that she was gay and that her and her friend were moving to Hawaii and she wanted me to bless their union together. And uh, I got to tell you, I, we couldn't have been more shocked. We had no idea that that was part of... Uh, Brenda's life. It's not the same Brenda whose letter we read, actually. And she was uh, sitting at our table with her friend 
for lunch one day and just saying, Wayne, is there any way God can bless this for us? And I just, I, I wept for her. Sarah and I both, we just said, you know what, Brenda, we love you. That will never change. We'll always love you. But very clearly what you're doing is outside the context of what God's revealed about himself and us. And this doesn't represent health. This represents some twist in your life that God would heal for both of you. No, we can't bless it, but we'll love you. And they, they were crying and, you know, they were leaving. She, that friend wasn't crying because we didn't really know her, but Brenda was. And we finally, when they, we were done and they could see I wasn't going to bless their union, they went outside and got in their car and left. And I hadn't seen her for three years. I was in the middle of teaching one Sunday morning, a group of folks at, back home, when uh, about halfway through what I was sharing, Brenda walked through the back door. I, I now know a little bit about this parable from this, because when I saw Brenda, the only thing I wanted to do at that moment was go back and hug her. I didn't know if she had repented. I mean, I could assume it. She was walking through the back door of a gathering of Christians, so maybe that was what it was about, but it really didn't matter to me. And I just, I stopped, I took the mic off, I handed it to somebody, I said, would you finish this for me? And they're like, what are you talking about? And uh, I went over to Sarah, who was sitting in the front row, and I just said, honey, Brenda's here. She what? She looked up, and I said, let's go. We walked through the back, went and hugged her, she screamed, we cried. I don't know what the group did to finish the service. We didn't finish it. We went outside with Brenda, and after three years, Brenda had just come to some incredible changes and transformation. I don't ever remember being as excited to see anyone my life as much as I was excited to see Brenda come back in those doors at that moment, other than when I get home to Sarah. And um, so I know a little bit about what this father felt, just a little. He's running down the road. He's trumped the son's shame, taking it on himself. The mockery's going to him. The people are chasing him down the road. Why are they chasing him down the road? The servants, remember? They're behind him. Why are they chasing? Well, if you're in a school playground and you see kids running for a corner of the playground, what do you usually know is going on in the corner of the playground? There's a fight. This is not, yeah, this is, same goes on. A bunch of kids running somewhere. Something's up to no good. And usually two kids are beating the daylights out of each other. And everybody goes to watch it because uh, I guess fight's pretty interesting. I'm sure these slaves just thought that dad's going to whack that boy good. And he's running down the road. We're going to run after him and see what goes on. Maybe he doesn't want his son to set foot on the property. I don't know. And I don't know what the son was feeling. I can imagine the son, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a hard conversation in front of you, you probably got your head down practicing your line, right? Your opening line. I do that a lot. You know, I get that. I make sure you get the first words out. I've sinned against heaven and earth. Somewhere he hears the flop, flop, flop of sandals bearing down on him. And he looks up and it's dad. He doesn't. I don't think he's anticipating. Oh, dad, welcome home. I think he, he launches into a speech right away. God, a father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And I don't mean worthy to be called your son. Does the father ever acknowledge the speech? He never does. He never says, oh, I, I'm glad you've come to your senses, boy. He never says a word to him. He grabs him, tackles him, hugs him, kisses him. They're rolling in the dirt together, as Max Lucado describes it. Just frolicking, and Dad's kissing his boy and hugging, and he jumps up, and he turns to the slaves who've come looking for a fight, and I haven't got one. He turns to them, and he says, get the robe, get the ring, get the sandals. Light the barbecue, kill the cow. My son's home. Now, this is, this is the most incredible parable to me because this father acts like no father you and I have ever known. What father do you know has ever given his son an inheritance who was up to no good, especially? What father? I, I've told this story all over the world. I've actually came up, one person at break time said, I know a father who did this. And I said, what? 
Yeah, his son was 28 years old, crack addict, been in and out of jail for theft and things, and was in a flop house, praying for his son one day. This father felt like God said, give your boy his inheritance. And he went, well, wow, you just, you just I'm doing that. What are you talking about? I wrestled with it for months, finally concluded that this is what God was asking him to do. He had three boys, so he liquidated enough of his estate to get cash for a third of it. He put that third in a bank account in his son's name. And he went into the seedy part of town to find his son and finally found him on an old dilapidated mattress in a flop house. Went to his son and when his son saw dad coming, still in this cracked stupor, got all defensive and scared, didn't know what dad was coming for. And he said, son, I'm not here to hurt you. And he went and kneeled down by the, by the bed and he said, I love you. I've always loved you. I'm afraid you're not going to live long enough to see this. So I brought it to you. And he hands the son the, the passbook. He says, what is this? He says, son, this is your inheritance. I'm going to give it to you now to do with what you will. And the dad left. <laughs> the story turned out great. This is not something I'd recommend anybody doing. If God tells you to do it, great. The son checked himself into rehab later that day. Got off crack, went back, and got, went back to university, bought himself an education. Turned out marvelously. I just, what an amazing story. Son finally had a way out. And, but we just don't know a father like this one. What father loves their son enough to give him an inheritance when he's up to no good? How could even Jesus tell a story like this? Except he had already seen it. In a garden called Eden, God gave us everything we needed to have life and gave us the freedom to live it without him. And we did. And we walked away. Jesus is only telling the history of salvation. It's already been done. The younger sons have already taken the inheritance and squandered it in a world on their own pleasure instead of God's life. It's already been done. And the Father waits until sin works its course in us and we're just tired of living to ourselves and trying to provide for ourselves and feed ourselves and then maybe decide, ah, turn home and be God's slave, be the Father's slave. I think there's amazing moments of the Father revealing himself in this verse and this portion of Scripture. And I like asking people, where, where do you think in the story? There's some real key moments. The Father giving his son the inheritance and letting him go. The Father waiting over the course of years for his son to come back. The son and then welcoming him home with such forgiveness and reinstituting him as a son in the house, not a hired servant at all. Where in this parable do you think the Father demonstrates his love best for the son? Where in this parable does the father love the son the most? What do you think? Thoughts? Huh? Letting him go? Oh, my gosh. From a mother's standpoint, isn't letting him go the hardest? Could be. Anybody else? Thought? Give him, yeah, letting him go. Giving him the stuff and letting him go? Could be. You know, I think when I read through this parable... And I think it's even funny that we think of loving the most or loving the least. I think what's in this parable is the father's love is the only constant thing in this parable. He loves the son totally when he lets him go. Loves the son totally when he waits for him to come back. Loves the son totally when he comes back. The drama of the parable is not driven by the rise and fall of a father's affection. That's the constant. What drives the drama of the story is the son's perception of that love. 
When he demands his father's inheritance, he's living as if he is less loved. When he takes that inheritance to a far-off country, he's living as if he is not loved by his father. When he squanders it on his own amusement, he's living as if he is not loved. When he ends up selling himself into slavery, he still does not have any idea how much this father loves him. And even when he comes home to grovel himself a hired hand job, he still does not understand how much this father loves him. All of our wanderings in sin result from the fact that we have no idea how much this father loves us. We just don't. We measure love in human terms. We try to convince ourselves of God's love. We all have disappointments, things God hasn't done for us when we thought he could, should, would, if he loved us. We've all had disappointments. We've all had hurts. But the reason we find ourselves flailing in sin is because we have no idea how loved we are. Does that son ever get it? I don't know. At some point, maybe eating that steak in that house, realizing he's a son again, maybe then it finally sinks in. And we also know, I think now, why the father gave him the inheritance and let him go to begin with. How does a father do that? What does the father have with his son at the end of the parable that he does not have at its beginning? What is it? That's a relationship of affection. Does he have it at the start? No, son doesn't treat him with any affection. He has it for the son. Son doesn't have it for him. Why does he let him go? Why does he trade his inheritance? Send it off into debaucherous living? in hopes that a son would come home that would share this affection with his father. I think that's the deal. That was so important to God. I think that gives us some glimpse at why Eden? Why a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why, why that? Because God treasures in our relationship with him, not our obedience, but our affection. God does not want the indentured servitude of slaves, but the affection, the extravagant affection of sons and daughters whom he loves. Does that make sense? This whole parable, I think, is about this relational engagement that God doesn't have, that God wants, and that God's willing to sacrifice anything to get it. And he gets it with that boy. But as I said, there's two sons in this passage. The older son's out in the field. He hears a big brouhaha going in the house, doesn't he? What does he do about that? Remember? Who, who, who checks it out? He sends a slave in. Sends a slave. Go check out what's going on. Do you think he doesn't know? I'm the third of four brothers. I tell you what, my brother took an inheritance, went away and wasted it, and came back and had a party. I'd be mad too. And he is mad. And I think he's already thinking, man, fatted calf, big party, dad's house, this doesn't look good. I bet he's already thinking that stupid brother's home. He doesn't go check it out himself. Sends a servant to go in. The servant comes out and says, that brother of yours is home. Dad's killed the fad calf to own a party. And how's the brother respond? Oh, hallelujah. That's great. He is livid. He is so angry. The father finds out about it. What does the father do? Comes out to his son. Comes out to him. What are you doing? Listen to the language of the older boy. Father, all my life I have slaved for you on this farm. All my life I've slaved for you. You have not once killed this fatted calf and invited my friends and I over. You haven't done it. Now we see that the older brother, the goody two-shoes brother, the brother that stayed home, slaved on the farm, the brother didn't ask for the inheritance, didn't go wasted on prostitutes, and that, that's when he finally adds, by the way, 
And this son of yours, who went out and wasted your money on prostitutes, comes home. You throw a party for him. What does the father say? Do you remember? Son, don't you realize that everything I have is yours? First part of the parable, the bad son asked for his inheritance. Jesus says, and the father divided it up between them both. When the father says, everything I have is yours, he's absolutely telling the truth. The father hasn't owned anything since that younger boy left town. It's all belonged to the older brother. He hasn't used it any better either. He sees himself as a slave in father's house. He doesn't know his father any better than the younger son. And how do we know that? Because on the day of his father's greatest joy is the day of the older son's greatest anger. He doesn't get it. Interesting, Jesus leaves him there. We don't get the end of the story. Is he coming to the father's house or not? We don't know. Why? Because this is a parable. It's not a real story. It's a parable. And the older brother's standing right in front of him. It is the Pharisees that was complaining at him for partying with sinners. They're standing right there. You are the older brother. Are you coming or not coming? In my father's house are many places to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if, you, if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It was the father inviting the son into the same house. He's not coming. Now we find out that there's two ways to hide from God. One we know well. It's called rebellion. It's the younger brother. The language of rebellion is all about self-indulgence and self-preference and squandering. And we, we know what it is to hide in our sin. We know what that is. What Jesus makes clear in this parable is that there's another way to hide from God, and that is to hide to God in religion. Religion is what this older brother is doing. He's slaving away. It's what the Pharisees are doing, the ones he's telling the parable for. That it's just as easy to hide from God in religion as it is to hide from Him in rebellion. It's just another way of hiding. And as one who's hidden a long time in religious activity for God, I know that you can work that well and miss who He is. And yes, it does feel like slavery, and it is very frustrating, and you work hard, and then some nut who was a drug addict, murdering monster when he was a kid, gets saved, writes a book that sells more than yours because you never murdered anybody, so you don't have a near good a book to sell. Now, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> what you get into piece together from the New Testament is there are three roads that you can choose to walk on. I always thought there were only two. Everything I grew up was do- either in rebellion or you're in the life of Jesus. And so by saying that, we just create this whole religious veneer and we call it the life of Jesus. But it's the language of slavery. It is the language of fear. Well, why don't you give me some words that go over here with religious slavery? Duty. Great word. <laughs> Both duties. That would be funny, but let's not do that. Um, yeah. Control. Rules. Expectation. Oh, I like these words. Approval. Shame. Guilt. Pardon? Pressure. My favorite word that we use in uh, religious environments today. Accountability. Covering. Submissiveness. It's all about power. It's about control. It's about pressure. It's about expectations. It's slavery. That's all what religion is. Religion is all of that. 
And it's just another way to hide from who God is. Tithing. Tithing, there you go. I've got a friend that drew me a cartoon a while back. I put it on my newsletter once. I don't know if it's on the website anywhere, but this is a guy, Jesus is standing there, and he's saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you an accountability group. (laughs) Because that will help. The reason I like jumping on the accountability thing is because we've used it to define body life in the 21st century. We have. It's all about accountability. But you can't find anywhere in Scripture where the word accountability is tied to our relationship as brothers and sisters. It's not there. Not anywhere. We talk, the scripture talks about my accountability to God. We are all going to give an account to God. It, it does say that. That's there. But what we're asked to do for each other is owe no one nothing except to love one another. If you love each other, accountability. I know most people use the term accountability in terms of fellowship. I mean, well, we're honest with each other. And we'll, we'll admonish or confront if we see somebody struggling. And you know what? I think love does that. I don't think accountability does that. Uh, when you're on the freeway and that highway patrolman pulls behind you and you're going down the freeway, you are probably, for that moment, the safest driver on the road. Am I right? And you're probably as safe as you will ever be. Because not only are you driving better, everybody around you is driving better. But do you enjoy it? I mean, you just, when he finally pulls off at the next next intersection, you're going, oh, thank God. And you, ah. Accountability does not endear you relationally. It doesn't do it. My love, if you and I get to know each other and have affection for each other, that affection will take us everywhere we need to go. If you're struggling, I will come and get you. If I'm hurting, hopefully you will come and get me. And if I get off into some freaky air-filled thing, hopefully you would come down and say, you know what, Wayne, i got to tell you, I'm just not tracking where you're at and here's why, and we could have a conversation about it. But you wouldn't be trying to come at me like a cop and trying to compel me to action. That's what accountability means. It's the right to compel to action. And anytime the body of Christ thinks it has a right to compel people to action, you end up with all kinds of horrible things. It doesn't transform people. It kills people. Under the guise of trying to help. See, I think everything about religion is we're trying to help. You know, people come and get part of the group. They go through a difficult thing. They get hurt. They drop out for a while. So if we have a covenant, then they'll have to stay even if they're hurt, and that'll be good. But it always turns out. Always turns out. Because until we lose control of our own lives and live under Father, we'll never know how to give up trying to control our friends. Or sing. We're going to talk about. See, we, we talk about some of the negative things about religion here that we're all aware of, but there's a whole other piece to this that we're missing, which is the quest for righteousness. But it's a righteousness that comes from self-effort. Mm-hmm. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter three, when he talks about whatever things were gained to me, what was gained to him? Didn't he have quite a little pedigree? You know, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and raised a Pharisee of Pharisees as to the law found faultless as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Philippians 3, we get Paul's little pedigree there. Man, great guy. And then he says, whatever was to my gain, I now count as loss. Actually said I count as manure. It's the better word. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And be found in Him, not with the righteousness of my own derived from law, He's talking about religion. Not that. Not, it's, it's, see, it's not just the quest of religion to control, because that's there, we've been hurt by it, but even the religious idea in me that if I try harder and work harder for God, I can be better for Him. Religion as an attempt to know God better. 
is still a way to hide from God because we hide in our self-effort. We may not want to hide, but we are. So Paul says, I don't want to be found in him with the righteousness of my own derived from the works of the law, but I want to be found in him with the righteousness that comes from faith. And then we'll talk more about this because now he begins to define what I think is the third road. These two roads, both of them, we'll talk about this more, are the roads that are under the law of sin and death. And that's language that the New Testament uses. We'll talk a little bit about it. And neither one of these. Why, why Paul writes the Galatians with such passion? You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? He's writing because you think this is going to get you closer to Jesus. It's not. There's a whole other way of living, which we're going to define just to keep the R's cute, relational. To live out of the relationship with God. There's a whole other way to live this life. This one promises life, the self-righteous part of this. It promises good things. You'll be different. You'll be better. You'll work hard. But it doesn't give you life. It doesn't get there. Life is in the sun. That's supposed to be an arrow. Man, that is a mess. Uh, we'll fix it at break time. Um, that's what we're going to talk about. How to live beyond this, not here, not there. How to live in the life of relationship. And what you're going to notice, I hope, is not, oh, these are the bad guys. Those are the bad guys. And we're the good guys. Because I think any one of us on this day could say, there's still part of me that lives in rebellion against God. There's part of me that does. There's part of me that's hooked into religion, and I notice these religious things coming and going, and God and I got to sort that out. And there's part of me that's, even when I was caught up in that religious stuff, there was a part of me that touched some reality in God that stirred my heart with hunger. So this is not either-or propositions here. These are, here's two ways to run from God. Here's the only way to get closer. And so let's, let's learn to give more and more to this in our lives. But it's not about, oh, now we can divide the whole world up. There's them rebellious sinner pagans out there. There's all them religious people who do all that, you know, religious gobbledygook morons. But we're relational people because we meet in littler groups or what? What's that? Absolutely. And someone was asking me a question the other day. I won't exactly tell you what the question was, but we were talking about, we could use the word relational, because it's one I use a lot. There are a lot of people now using the word relational, and when they describe it, it's this. Because here's the relational. Yeah, covenant's a good way to do it, and commitment is a good way to do it. And it but we use the word relational now because it's a popular word. Or relational. I used the, I used the language when I was here. Because what we were hoping for, I didn't get into religion to control people. I really didn't. I got into religion because there were some ways that God touched my life, even as a young man, where I knew he was alive in the universe and I wanted to know him. And religion was the only way I was given to know him. So I worked that thing, man. I didn't mean I worked it on others. I worked it for me. I worked it hard. And it left me always frustrated every night of my life. God, what more do you need from me? After all I've done for you, man, I'm still dead in here. I'm trying hard. I'm denying myself. I'm not doing lots of stuff my friends are doing. Why do I not have more life? I mean, this was, this was sheer torture for me. Not the pursuit of religious control. I mean, I wanted God. And I was told this is the way to do it. I was taught that the more righteous you can be, the more relationship with God you can have. Isn't that true? And the New Testament, the whole Upper Room Discourse is exactly the opposite of that. It is the more relationship you'll have with God, the more righteous He'll make you to be. It's how do we live with God at our most broken? How do we live with God through my greatest failure? If I can't live with Him there, I won't be transformed. 
If I've got to earn it to get there, if the road to relationship lies through performance and getting the stuff right, believing the right things, doing the right thing, if it lies through that, we have no hope. They're just not that bright enough, people. That's why when Jesus says in John 14, right after we stopped reading, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, religion can take that and say, if you love him, you'll do what we're telling you to do. Here's the commands. And you take Ephesians and Philippians and old man, new man stuff, and they say, okay, these are the new rules. Now, we're New Testament principles, we call them. It's still a law. It's still we're going to get better by understanding what we should be doing and then doing it. It's still performance. The problem is it doesn't work because what needs to change in all of us is deeper than law could ever touch. Somebody else might need help getting in the back door there. Um, whatever help we need, it's, we're just not good enough, bright enough, whole enough, only out of this real relationship with Jesus. Does he begin to untangle sin at its core level? It's not what I'm doing. It's why I'm doing it. I can resist it, but resisting it is not living free of it. And we're going to find language in Romans 8, Philippians chapter 3. The church at Laodicea describes, it, it describes, I would rather have you cold or hot, but not lukewarm. See, Jesus, according to the Revelation 3 church at Laodicea, this is the worst place to live. Because you think you've got it right, and you're missing it. And you don't know. Jesus, that's, I never, who understands Laodicea when you're pastoring a group of people? My God, I'd rather have you lukewarm than cold. I'd rather have at least you're picking a little body here, pretending you're trying to get hot. What, what, what's the value of cold? The value of cold is you're living the reality of what your life is. It's that boy in that far off country, eventually in that pig pen. He's living who he really is. He is closer to coming home here than this boy is who's slaving and feeling like I'm the goody shoes kid. He's my, that's why Jesus said, I would rather have you cold or hot. But So New Testament paints three ways to think this thing through. And we've, I think I missed that most of my life. I read Galatians saying, oh my gosh, that's the Jews. Galatians, that's the problem. It's Judaism. And then we got a little wiser and go, oh, it's really just legalism. So, well, that's the Catholics. Or the Presbyterians or somebody else. It's not me. And lo and behold, realized that I was pastoring the church at Galatia. It wasn't good. I didn't know I was. Closer you are to the truth, the more the poison in it is, is subtle and deceptive. So we'll come back and sort out this, uh, I think, the road we want to be on. How do we live relationally in the life of and the love of the Father? This is live loved and love. That's that simple. Live loved and love. And live loved and love, and then everything that needs to be changed in you gets changed. Everything God needs you, the good works He's prepared for you in advance to do, get done as you are loved and love. They don't get done as you're trying to jump through hoops to earn it. Make sense? Okay. 